Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 4, 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Francis. Please remain standing for the sermon. I'm just kidding. Sit down. Sit down. Well, good morning. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. And if you are newer with us, if maybe this is your first time, we're particularly glad you're here. Uh, We say this a lot, but we know how hard it is to to walk through the doors of a new church for the first time. So thank you for for trusting us with that. Um, We pray that you have a good experience and and feel welcomed and loved uh, by our family here. Well, we're going to enter now a time of teaching where we unpack God's Word, and this morning we're actually closing out a series that we've been in over the last several weeks in the book of Philippians that we've called Return to Joy. So we're going to close out that series. We're going to look at the, the final words that, that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, but before we do that, would you join me uh, in prayer? Father God, We come to you this morning and we confess that as we yearn for more joy in our lives, you are the source of all joy, the happiest being in the world, and that we cannot truly find that joy apart from you. Thank you for sharing your joy with us, for being the creator of all things beautiful, the giver of all things that are good. Help us to see you that way this morning, and through your spirit, God, would you produce the fruit of joy in our hearts and in our community as we close this series this morning. Open our hearts, our ears, our minds to understand your word, and through your spirit, would you apply it to our lives. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of that very spirit. Amen. Well, last Friday night, not a couple days ago, but uh, a week ago Friday night, uh, I was up way past my bedtime, uh, past midnight actually, uh, and what I was doing during that time was I was watching the NBA playoffs. 
And in particular, uh, I was watching as the Phoenix Suns beat the defending champion Los Angeles Lakers. Now, I've been a, a Suns fan basically as long as I can remember, since the days of Steve Nash and the Seven Seconds or Less Suns, Mike D'Antoni. If you know basketball, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you don't, you just, you just don't, sorry. Um, but I've always been a Phoenix Suns fan. And I just don't know if I was happier because the, the Suns won or because the Lakers lost, because I've also always hated the Lakers. But then I was kind of like, why choose? They're both great. Uh, I love them both. Uh, it's like a dream come true. Yet as I watched the defending champions uh, go down, lose in the first round of the playoffs, I was reminded of just how hard it is to repeat as champions, particularly in professional sports. We unfortunately learned that the hard way last year with the Chiefs, but it's hard to repeat as champions. And legendary NBA coach Pat Riley, who actually coached for the, the Showtime Lakers, had a theory of why this is that he called the disease of more. The disease of more. And the theory goes like this. The defending champions often fail the following season because every player who returns wants more playing time, more shots per game, more recognition, and more money. The next year, the more that they get, the more that they achieve, the more they accomplish as a team, the more that each individual player wants. And therefore, the team just doesn't end up being quite as good. It's what he calls the disease of more. And the thing is, I think that we could diagnose our souls with the exact same disease. We want more money. We wish we had more time. We want more pleasure. We want more stuff. And yet, just like defending champions, the more that we get, the more we realize that there's more that we still don't have, right? That's kind of how it works. Ashton and I uh, have seen this firsthand this last year. Uh, last August, we were lucky enough uh, to buy a house before the market just went bonkers. <laughs> so we snuck in just kind of right at the tail end, right as things were getting crazy, and, and we, were, we were able to buy a house. And if you're here this morning, you're trying to buy, I'm praying for you. Uh, it's hard. I know it's hard. Talk to Pastor Bill about it. It's, it's pretty crazy right now. But we were able to buy a house. We've been in it for about nine months. And what we've noticed recently is that before we had a house, we would always say, man, if only we had a house. Like, if only we could get a house, then this would go well. We'd have a yard for the dog. We'd be able to, to host more people. Like, if only we had a house. Once we get there, then, then it'll be great. And yet recently, we've noticed that it's occasionally become, if only we had a bigger house, or a new kitchen, or if we, we finished the, the attic so we could put another room and bathroom up there, or if our yard wasn't so weird and just had just normal grass, uh, that would be great. It's the disease of more, right? The more we get, the more we see that we want and still don't have. Another word we could use to diagnose this disease is this word, the word discontent. Discontent. Friends, we live in a society that is marked by an overwhelming spirit of discontentment. Which is ironic because there's more at our fingertips than ever before, than, than any moment in human history. There's more to have, and yet many of us are beleaguered by a constant sense that we don't have enough, right? That we just need something more. And that's perpetuated by the world around us. Advertising, marketing agencies, big tech, 
They know that we feel this way. And so what's promised to us by the world around us is if we just get more of the you name the thing, then we'll experience joy. If we just get more of that, then we'll experience joy. But what we find instead, often from hard experience, is that the desire for more, instead of nourishing our joy, like it promises, is hemorrhaging it. In fact, I think that one of the greatest obstacles to discovering and experiencing joy today is this pervasive spirit of discontentment. And this morning, as we we close out this series that we've been calling Return to Joy, as we look at this, this final section of Philippians, Paul makes this much clear, that our joy can only go as deep as our hearts are content. Our joy can only go as deep as our hearts are content. Now, let's, let's, let's look at how he gets there. So if you haven't already, turn with me uh, to Philippians chapter 4, and let's take a look at what Paul says. We'll start out in verse 10. Uh, it'll pop up on the screen for you, too, if you want to uh, read along that way. Here's what he says. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul is starting uh, this last section of the letter uh, by thanking the Philippian church for financial support they had sent to him. That's what he means when he says, revived your concern for me. They, you might remember that the Philippian church uh, had sent out a man named Epaphroditus who, who almost died, uh, bringing Paul this gift, the financial support, as he, as he sits in prison and awaits trial in Rome. So they'd sent him money, and actually one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that Paul even wrote this letter in the first place was to express his gratitude for that support and for that gift. He, he wanted to, to express what, what here in the Greek is like super joy. He says, I rejoiced greatly, like mega joy, at receiving their gift. And then he tacks on, he's like, don't worry that it took so long. Uh, he, he's like, you were concerned for me, but you didn't have an opportunity, so, so I understand. So he wants to, to thank them. But then it gets a little weird. Look with me now at verse 11. It says, Thank you for the gift. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. So, so Paul gets off the thanks train pretty quickly there. He, he's like, thanks for your gift. Totally okay it took a while, but you know what? I don't really need it in the first place. Like, like what's this guy doing? It'd be like if you sent a letter uh, or a thank you note after your wedding to your Aunt Susie, and you're like, Aunt Susie, Thank you so much for those pots and pans that you gave us. We were so happy, so grateful to receive those, those pots and those pans. But you know what? Actually, we already had plenty of pans. And, and, and three other people also gave us pots and pans at this wedding, so we're probably going to re-gift them at another wedding. Now, now, you wouldn't say that, right? It, it might be true. It's probably definitely true. But, but you wouldn't tell Aunt Susie. Like, what's Paul doing here? I think he's doing something a little more intentional than just being kind of rude. <laughs> because later on, he's going to say, you know what? Like, I didn't need it, but that gift was actually really helpful. So he kind of goes back. Look at verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Like, I didn't need it, but I'm not mad about it. Thanks. And you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, and when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul is saying here, what, what, what really gives me joy, it's not that, that your gift put me in the black. <laughs> I didn't have to have it. But what I'm really happy about is, is that it's evidence of your love and friendship. That even when no one else remembered me or supported me, 
You did. That's why I'm rejoicing. It's not the amount of the gift, but your friendship. So Paul truly is glad to receive the gift. This isn't Paul just being salty and subtle to the Philippians. Instead, what I think he's trying to do, I think he's trying to show them something about his joy that goes beyond just getting more money. He's trying to show them something about his joy that isn't bound to the amount of the gift that he's received. And the key is that word at the very end of verse 11. Look again with me at that verse. The very end of verse 11, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation to be content. To be content. He explains more of what he means by this word content in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, Paul is saying, my emotional state, my happiness, my joy, my peace, they don't change drastically whether I have a lot or I have a little. I can be just as happy with plenty as with need. Why? Because I've learned the secret of being content. Now, before we discover what Paul thinks Christian contentment is, I think that we need to get on the same page about what contentment is not. Because there are a lot of ways that we could read a verse like this, or maybe we're influenced by other ideas of contentment, and we can get lost and misunderstand what contentment truly is. So I want to give us just really quickly three things that contentment is not. First, contentment is not self-sufficiency. Contentment is not self-sufficiency. Uh, Paul had some contemporaries in the first century, uh, philosophers that were called the Stoics, and the Stoics were really into this idea of contentment. However, their method of getting there was a lot on this, this idea uh, of self-sufficiency, that, that, that no matter what, I have what it takes to make it through. I have enough, I am enough, so no worries. And this is especially tempting for us today in a Midwestern pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps-and-just-do-something-about-it world, Right? that the more self-sufficient I am, the more content I will be. But that's not the way that Paul views contentment. Contentment is not self-sufficiency. Second, contentment is not apathy. Contentment is not apathy. It would be really easy for us, and Christians have over the years, to read these verses and say, oh, if my happiness isn't connected to my circumstances, if I'm really going to be content, then I have to detach myself emotionally from everything going on around me. I just have to numb my feelings, disconnect myself from my circumstances so that when bad things happen, I just don't care. Or at least I tell myself I don't. Now the problem with that, of course, is that not only is that literally not possible, it also leads us further down, away from the path of joy. Contentment is not apathy. Finally, contentment is not poverty. Contentment is not poverty. Now that might sound obvious to you. Contentment's not poverty. But, but we can easily misunderstand what Paul is saying here and think that he is calling us to pursue a life of lack. That, that, that the only way to be content is to intentionally subject ourselves to poverty and suffering. That the, the, the less you have, the more you suffer, the more content you'll be. Now the problem with that is, we can be just as content, discontent whether we already have a lot or we've already always had a little. We can be just as discontent whether we have a lot or we have a little. Because remember, underneath discontentment lies that basic idea that if I just have more of blank, then I will be happy. 
My family, uh, growing up, did not have as much as other families around me. It just, we just didn't have as much. And, and, and slowly, over the course of my life, I found kind of these seeds of discontentment soaking in, where it was like, oh, if I just had, like, if my parents were, were just still married, or if I just had, if we just had this much money, then I could go to this school, or, or if my experience growing up wasn't like this, then, then maybe I'd have a, had a happy life. And, and, and slowly, those ideas, even though we didn't have much, I was really, really discontent. You can have a lot and be content. You can have a lot and be discontent. You can have very little and be content. You can have very little and be discontent. Because behind every feeling of discontentment is this feeling that if I just have more of blank, I'll be happy. So contentment is not poverty either. For Paul, contentment has nothing to do with self-sufficiency or apathy or idolizing poverty. What he makes clear is, is what the difference from contentment, for his contentment is from these other misunderstandings. And he does that in verse 13. You might have heard it before. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this verse is one that we're all pretty much familiar with, I would guess. You might have it tattooed on your shoulder or something like that. It's a pretty good verse. But what we usually do when we talk about this verse is actually strip it from its context and use it to say something very different from the way Paul meant it. Because when we quote this verse, we use it to say more of things like this. I can get a promotion at work through Christ who strengthens me. I can hit 70 home runs through Christ who strengthens me. And maybe a little HGH. I can become president through Christ who strengthens me. I don't want to, but I could. I can jump off a cliff and fly through Christ who strengthens me. We probably don't actually say that, but you get the idea. I could run a 3-5-40 through Christ who strengthens me. Let me let you in on a secret. This body will never run a 3-5-40. I don't care how much Jesus is in me. It's just not going to happen. Flying's probably more likely at that point. Now, does Jesus strengthen us to do things we never thought we could do? Absolutely. Is it wrong to think you can aspire to do big things and count on Jesus to help you get there? Of course not. But that's not the main thing that Paul is saying here. And our English translations actually don't help us out here because the verse in the Greek doesn't have the verb to do. The word do and I can do is not in that Greek text at all. So our translations don't help us very well, but it's better translated literally like this. In all things... I have strength in the one who gives me strength. In all things, I have strength in the one who gives me strength. We could also say it this way. I can endure all things because Jesus is more than enough for me. I can endure all things because Jesus is more than enough for me. That's the basic idea behind verse 13. And that's where Paul's contentment comes from. It's not self-sufficiency, it's Jesus' sufficiency. It's not apathy, but trust in his care and provision in his life. It's not about pursuing a life of lack, it's pursuing a shepherd in whose presence you do not lack, as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 23. That's the key. Paul can be content because Jesus is more than enough for him. He trusts his nearness, his care, his provision. That's the source of Paul's contentment. That's what makes it different. Now, all of this sounds great, right? Like you're probably amening in your hearts uh, a little bit at that. We can pretty much all agree that, that contentment 
would be nice. It'd be nice to have a little more contentment in our lives. But how do we get there? Paul doesn't really tell us what the secret is. It's kind of not very helpful from him. He doesn't really tell us the secret. He doesn't tell us how he learned it. He just says, I've learned the secret of contentment. So how do we get to a place where, where we can say like Paul that we know how to rejoice whether we have a lot or a little? How can we get to that place? And, and this morning, just let me say uh, really quickly that if you're feeling acutely the, the, the difficulty and the futility of the, of the potential of a life of contentment, if it really feels out of reach for you, just remember that this is something that apparently took a long time for Paul to learn. Like, it took a long time in his life for him to learn this secret. So he doesn't just give us a quick fix or an easy answer. Those don't exist. Which means it's okay to kind of feel this morning, if you're feeling like your circumstances are just bogging you down, it's okay to feel the daunting weight of something that might be a little out of reach right now. That's okay. Paul, Paul I think, leans in here and gives us the freedom to do that this morning. But he does maintain still that it is possible. He does maintain that it's possible. And I want to suggest this morning three habits of joyful contentment. Three habits that, that form the content soil where, where joy can really take root in our lives, that, that lead to greater contentment and deeper joy. And here's the first habit. We see it right here in the text. It's give generously. Give generously. Remember how, how enthusiastic Paul is about the Philippians giving. Even though he's like, I don't really need it, I don't see myself as someone in need. He's really excited that they're giving generously. And in fact, he's going to go on to say that when we give, it bears certain spiritual fruit in our lives. That there's something about giving that makes us more like Jesus. In fact, he even goes as far as to say that their gift they gave him is an act of worship. Look what, at verse 17. It says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. Again, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. And look at this. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul says in these final verses that our giving, and yes, even and especially our financial giving, is an act of obedience in which God himself delights. It's an act of worship. We could rephrase the, the end of that verse to say that the aroma of our generosity rises and fills God's nostrils and puts a smile on his face because he's a generous God. In fact, I think if Paul were here today and we came up to him and we're like, dude, Paul, why are we so discontent? I think one of the first things he would ask is, well, how much are you giving away? Because the more that we stretch ourselves to give generously, the more trust we're placing in Jesus that he is enough and that he will provide. In other words, the more that we give away, the more we realize that we can get along and, yes, even have joy when living with less. One of my first forays into uh, giving, uh, I was in high school, and it was with one of my best friends growing up, still one of my best friends today, a guy named Jake. And in high school, Jake and I uh, had this rule that we would always pay one of us would always pay for both of us, no matter where we went. One of us was always going to, we're not swiping two cards. Uh, I don't care if we're at the gas station. I don't care if we're at getting a pizza buffet. One of us is paying for both of us. We just had that rule. And, and it actually even got to a point where Jake was bummed when I started dating Ashton because he was like, hey, that was our thing. And now you're paying for her stuff. <laughs> but the thing about it was we didn't keep track. 
we didn't worry about splitting tabs. We, weren't, we didn't have a little ledger that we were trying to see, all right, are we breaking even? Who needs to pay for the next one? We just, kind of our phrase was like, it'll just even out. <laughs> it'll even out. No, it didn't. I guarantee you that one of us owes the other one thousands of dollars. I don't know who, but one of us owes the other person a lot of money. It did not even out. But not only did it make it easier to, to be at restaurants, or it, not only did it strengthen our friendship, but it actually, I found, made me more generous. Like, I would find myself subconsciously, without thinking about it, relying on that habit, and I would find myself in other places with other people, and I would offer to pay for their meals. And I was trusting that, that I wouldn't end up bankrupt as a result. And here I am, a poor college student. I was like, How, what happened to this? And it was that habit of giving generously. So let me ask you, in what ways can you stretch yourself to give more generously? Whether this is a season of a lot or a little for you, how might God be calling you to give yourself away more right now? In what ways can you stretch yourself to give more generously? And in particular, let me encourage you, if you've been around Christ community for a while, if you have another local church you call your home, consider what it might look like to either start giving or give more generously to the mission of the local church, whatever local church it is. And let me just take a moment to say that this is an incredibly generous church. An incre- I, I believe it so much that I want to say it a lot, that this is an incredibly generous church. And your gifts this past year, especially in the middle of a pandemic and a shaky economy, they have truly brought us great joy. I mean that. Your worship is pleasing to God. And I hope you see, especially for those of you who are newer this year, that that, that that generosity goes directly to multiplying disciples of Jesus in churches all over the KC metro area. So whether to the local church or other organizations or people in need or opening up your home to people who are different from you or, or giving to your friends, whether you have a lot or a little, in what ways can you stretch yourself to give more generously right now? Because if we excel, excel more in our giving, we will excel still more in our contentment and joy. As a wise king once said, it is more blessed, more happy to give than to receive. So give generously. Here's the second habit of joyful contentment. Live simply. Live simply. Simplicity ha- has always been an important discipline in, in the Christian church. Uh, It's a habit that Christians have used throughout uh, the centuries and and have adopted to fight the disease of more, to resist this temptation to accumulate more stuff in order to be happy. One of my favorite thinkers and authors of the 20th century is a man named G.K. Chesterton, and he mused once that that there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. There are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less less. And living simply is a habit that trains us to use, to need, to want, and to crave less in our lives. Because the disease of more, it's not usually something that we intentionally choose, right? We're not sitting around and we're like, hey, I want to be inflicted with this disease of more. It kind of creeps up on us, doesn't it? If you ask my wife if there was one thing that I had too much of, there's one thing I have too much of. She would easily say, without even thinking about it, disc golf discs. There's the first thing that she would say. You have way too many discs. Many of you know that I'm pretty into disc golf, and my wife is so right. I have way too many discs for someone who just plays recreationally. And I've even told myself, like I have talked to myself, I said, Taylor, 
Stop buying discs. You don't need more. You have enough. But then what happens is I'm scrolling on the internet and I see a new disc that came out or a disc that I already have but in a different color. And I'm like, that's what I need to get better. Like if I just got it in blue, maybe I'd finally be good at this sport. And before I know it, I've bought another one. That's how the disease of more works. Now, of course, that's not how life or growing at anything works at all, right? Like, it would be way better for me to get rid of my extra discs, stop buying more, and learn to throw a few really well instead of throwing a lot really poorly. But I feel the discontent and the disease of more kind of creeping in when I do that. And we, when we practice simplicity, it's the exact same thing. We cut out the excess, excess possessions, excess hobbies, excess commitments, and we learn to live with less so that we can enjoy more of what really matters. So we can pay attention to what we already have and so be content. It's an act of resistance to that disease of more. So let me ask you, is there an area of your life where you could learn to live a little bit more simply? Is there an area of your life where you could learn to live more simply? Maybe one less TV subscription. Maybe it's your wardrobe, your clothing the cars you own, downsizing your house, the food that you eat, the things you drink, hobbies that you have, the activities that your kids are involved in, the things that just fill your schedule. How might God be calling you to find contentment and joy through having and doing less? Is there an area of your life where, where you could learn to live a little bit more simply? To live simply, give generously. Here's the third habit. Encourage daily. Encourage daily. Now, we might not instinctively think of encouragement as a pathway to contentment. Those might seem a little disconnected in our minds, but just take a moment to think with me and consider what tends to generate discontentment in our hearts. Personally, I am more acutely aware of what I don't have when I see someone else who has it, right? I'm way more aware of what I don't have when someone else has that thing. And then what happens is the more that I dwell on what that other person has, the more discontent I become with what I have, and the more envious I become of what that person has, right? And then maybe some seeds of bitterness start to sow themselves in a little bit towards that person. It's kind of how discontentment grows in our hearts. Now, on top of that, we're living in a world that is filled with discouraged people. Just think of the last year. We're filled with discouraged people and rife with criticism, Right? Like, it's far easier for us to scan the horizon for things that we can criticize than scan the horizon for things that we can celebrate and affirm. That's what uh, David Murray observes in this really haunting analysis. Look what he says about our culture. He says, Criticizing comes much easier because we feel more comfortable looking down on people. Praising involves looking up in admiration, and our necks and our egos tend to creak and ache when we attempt it. Affirmation is also discouraged by powerful societal trends. Cynicism, distrust, suspicion, negativity, envy, political strife, bad news at home and abroad all combine to chill our hearts and shrink our souls. Does that sound like anything you've seen recently? And in a world like this, when our hearts are feeling like this, encouragement is one of the most basic habits of a community that is filled with joy and contentment. Because think about it, we can't be content if we're spouting criticism at other people. 
We also can't be content if we are motivated and driven by discouraging criticism that we've received from others, right? We need the habit of encouragement to build one another up in joy. One of my favorite examples of this that I've seen in the last year is, is actually one of our own congregants, uh, and her name is Alba Albers. And take a look at this, at this video, uh, this amazing story of how she used the power of encouragement in a really discouraging year. Take a look. So it actually started um, at the beginning of COVID. One day we were just upstairs and she said that she had a message. And so she said, can you film me? And so I was like, of course. I had no idea what she was gonna say. And she just started talking um, like she had been on camera forever. <laughs> when it matters about your heart, it matters to God. Your heart is special. It's special than anything in the whole world would record things that she says which are funny or things that we just plan to keep for ourselves, but it was so cute that we felt like we needed to share it. Jesus is the one who created us. He created everything, even walls and pictures and ceiling, even humans. And then she really got into baking during COVID, and so she liked to share messages. I'm Alba Albert. Today we're gonna make cookies. I know you, you're having trouble again but we can do it. One of the videos that people love is her showing how to make lunch, kind of teaching her friends to be a little more independent. Then um, we would get some contacts from friends saying like, hey, can Alba give us some encouragement? Jack is my friend from church. He had trouble tying his shoes. Hi, it's your friend Alba here. I know you don't believe in you can do it, but please believe in yourself. God will help you any way you want and helping you go through your day and your shoes. My videos are for to encouraging people. I think it's it's fun that she can be inspiring to, to others and, and it, it makes my heart feel happy that you know she is is serving in that way and being a light for God. It makes us really proud of her too that that she thinks to say you know those type of encouragements to people and that she remembers that it's important to go to God first, that she knows that she can go to God for anything and that she is brave enough to tell her friends that they need to go to God. It's fun to encourage in people. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, amen, clap for that. I love that. In a year where so many of us were caught up condemning others for not seeing things how we did, this young girl was empowering others in our church through the habit of encouragement. It's amazing. So let me ask you, how could you build a daily habit of encouragement in your life? How could you build a habit of daily encouraging others? Maybe a text to a boss or a coworker, an email to a pastor, we need your support right now, a letter to a friend from church, a phone call to a parent, an encouraging word for your wife or husband, where might God be calling you to be an encouraging presence in a world of criticism and discouragement? Live simply, give generously, encourage daily. So if you've been sitting here and you've been wondering kind of throughout this series what, what the next steps you can take are on this journey toward joy as we, we close it out, you're kind of feeling stuck or if you've been sitting here this morning and kind of slowly realizing that discontentment might be stealing your joy right now, these are three simple habits that if you truly embrace them and give them time, it's not going to be immediate, have the power to unlock the life of abundant joy made available to us in Jesus. I truly, truly believe that. 
But we can't ever lose sight of the big picture. Paul never did. In fact, he closes the letter with a beautiful and powerful reminder about what makes joy and contentment unique for followers of Jesus. See, Paul's joy, his contentment, it had a source in something outside himself. They weren't things that he could create or manage on his own or or think into being. They had a source outside himself. He had the strength to endure all things because of the one who gave him strength. He was content because Jesus was more than enough for him. Friends, listen. We can chase joy high and low. We can read every book, try every practice, implement every principle that we've talked so far about in this series. But if we're looking for joy anywhere that is not Jesus, we will never be satisfied. We'll never be satisfied. However you finish this sentence, if I only had blank, then I'd be happy. I want to break the news to you that that thing will never be enough. It will never lead to lasting joy if we do not seek it in and through Jesus. But now hear the good news. Paul was confident that the same Jesus that was more than enough for him is more than enough for the Philippian church and is more than enough for us today. He's convinced that that God is abundantly generous. It's at the essence of his being and he's eager to provide for us in our need, just like Alba reminded us in that video, right? So I want to close this message. I want to close this series with the same words of blessing and praise that Paul uses to close his letter. Receive these words as a blessing wherever you are and whatever you need right now. Verses 19 through 20. Hear these words spoken over you. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful that you are enough for us. Thank you for being the ultimate example of divine generosity in the giving of yourself. And God, I just feel prompted to pray right now like the words of Jeremiah 2 that that maybe many of us right now have forsaken the fountain of living water and are seeking out wells that are cracked and broken and cannot satisfy our thirst. And God, if we're doing that this morning, would you help call us back to you, draw us back to your heart, help us to see your generosity and love, to drink from the fountain of living water and so live and live the life of abundant joy that you promise. The guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus cannot be taken away from us. God, would you, would you weave that into the fabric of our daily lives? Would you anchor us in a community of relational joy that loves you and loves one another? And so would you help us Be content in all things. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen.